Hello, and welcome to the Three Wise DMs podcast, where three dungeon masters who've been doing this for way too long talk about how we handle all the tricky ins and outs of running a game of D&D or whatever else you might play. I'm Thor, and like my namesake from The Hobbit, I suppose I'm leading this expedition. And I'm joined by... Tony. And Dave. I'm the newbie here, so I guess I'm the Bilbo of the party. <laughs> and Tony likes to go by... Sometimes, uh, you want to call your Rothgar Tony, or you want to go by Tony? Let's go with Tony. Yeah, this is our first episode here, but Dave, Tony, and I have been playing for different lengths of time, and we all play in each other's games as well as with broader groups of friends, so we kind of have a very DMing experience and different takes on a lot of things. And the goal of the show is to talk about how we handle some of the parts of the game that aren't covered in the rule books, sort of the soft skills that keep, help keep the table together, help keep players excited, and help keep you as a DM energized and wanting to continue. In light of that, today we're going to talk about the situations we find most challenging as DMs and how we handle them. But before we begin, we would love to hear about the things that are hard for you as a dungeon master or game master so we can talk about them and offer you advice in future episodes. Please reach out to us on our website, 3 We are also on Facebook and Twitter, or you can email us directly at 3 at gmail.com. If you're having issues we can help you with, we'll do our best to guide you right. So, Dave, Tony, yeah, I've been rambling here. Why don't we start with what you guys are having trouble with or what you have trouble with as DMs? Tony, you want to kick us off? Like, what kinds of things do you think you're going to cover today? I would say the top three things that I struggle with as a DM is traumatized players, uh, <laughs> players who have a death grip on bad house rules, and rules attorneys. What about you, Dave? So, like, what do you think your top challenges are? Uh, very less specific and uh I thought this was a great lead-off episode because this is the drain we're going to be circling around for <laughs> ever, right? Is that you know this is a this is an art form that knows no end uh, to how you can improve. But for me, the biggest thing uh, would be dealing with the unexpected. Uh, whatever you have written, planned, anything. Uh, as much as you could possibly know, the players, when they turn left, what do you do? How do you do? Where do you do? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, for me, I think I've found over the years, some of the things that are trickiest for me are when uh, some players come into the game with a different set of expectations than what I have as a DM for kind of what the player is going to be like and what the what the DM's job is going to be and how we're going to mesh together. That's always challenging. And sometimes player interest, um, you know, every now and then you have a player who's into it and maybe checks out or because, you know, you two can't get on the same page with your interpretation of the rules or, or the dynamic, you know, keeping players engaged, keeping things flexible and making sure everyone continues to have a good time. Um, so, you know, with that in mind, that's kind of the quick, that's our table of contents for today's episode. And I'm not sure we'll get to all of that. Uh, some of it I'm sure we'll get to a little bit and get to more in later episodes. But why don't we start off with, you know, Dave, uh, the issue you brought up there, with dealing with the unexpected, you know, that's always one of the hardest things, especially for younger DMs. So, so tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an evolving problem. Uh, it's, in essence, I think what the, uh, I, I think it's what DMing is all about. And it's, it's what separates uh, the more experience from the less. But Maybe not two. I think it's what separates the really great DMs from everyone else. Let's let's how about we put it that way. But yeah, it's been an evolving problem for me, and I've dealt with it in different ways uh, from the very beginning, where I would set them on the sturdiest rails that have ever been constructed, to now where I have possibilities, but there is 
absolute uh, openness, even if I'm writing uh, pre-published stuff or pre-written stuff, that there's still the opportunity for the players to affect the world, to help build it, to create the story with me so that it's a much more communal experience, which I think probably runs into some of what you were talking about as well, Thorin, but we can get back to that. Well, I think we'll get, yeah, I'll get to that a little bit later. You know, it's, I've been playing one of those games. I know um, you had an interesting way of starting the game off there where you actually started us uh, as gladiators in a gladiatorial pit, which kind of put us under really tight control in the beginning. So you kept the players on rails in that they were slaves. And you had these slave collars on us that kept us from really being able to kind of leave the rails. But then we were sent on a mission outside of the pits by like second level. And however, the collars were still on us. So while we had freedom and could go, go do the exploring we wanted to, we still had these collars kind of making sure we stayed more or less on the straight and narrow. And I thought that was a really interesting solution, a way in a new game with new players who you didn't know at that point to really kind of, you know, say, okay, here's the rails, but we're going to get off the rails. Yeah, you're, I'm going to let you off the rails, but I'm going to kind of keep you a little bit more in the box because you know you can't travel too far without someone seeing. Absolutely. it's uh, It was a way to... With, with players I had never played with to know what type of player they are, uh, but, you know, while the first session can still happen so that there's still an adventure happening, there's still combat mm. happening, there's still a good time to be had, and we're not just all looking at each other after I go, what do you want to do? And everyone <laughs> looks at each other, you know? So it was a, it was a way to awkward. help kind of take a temperature for of the party, as it were. Uh, that is a really awkward moment in the game where you try to give this sense of agency and the players all look at each other like, well, what do you want to do? And then you throw out something like, well, there's the haunted forest. And they're like, nah. So when dealing with the unexpected, um, I'm not the greatest ad libber. Some DMs and people I've been played with over the years are fantastic ad libbers. And I, that's just not my bag. I feel much more comfortable being really prepared. So why don't we just just real quick. So and as a DM, you are very story focused. I mean, I played with you and you kind of have the here's the story you want to play through. It's not the players don't have any control, but you, you prefer to keep them kind of moving along along kind of the, the what you've got in mind. Right. That's absolutely right. Um, I think their agency is very important, but there needs to be boundaries within the agency. So while you are on rails, the train will travel a great distance but you're not getting off the tracks. So do you try to basically keep players on rails where you keep them moving, or do you just kind of, if they do something else, do you just try to kind of pull them back in? I try to control the motives of the game. So for example, Mm -hmm. you're in town and the main plot is to the North. And if you want to go to the Northeast, there's a subplot and perhaps there's another plot brewing. There's rumors to the Northwest. So really, that's you would imagine that's one of the three places they're going. Now, if these guys, you have that one guy in the party who wants to go south. Guess where south is? It's the land of hard encounters. You're level four. <laughs> there may be a criminally insane stone giant down there. It could happen. It's the old now, Final Fantasy trick, right? You try to cross the Final Fantasy seven. You try to cross the swamp. You get eaten by the windworm. Yeah, you have to face the giant snake. And uh, and at that point, honestly, they fight a whole. I mean they'll be facing a very hard encounter and they'll have an opportunity to run from it, which brings up the problem of, is it fair for the DM to throw a really hard monster out there that they can't defeat? And my <laughs> answer is yes, you had the option to run. And I'm sorry. 
You know, it, it's funny because I'm actually, I think the kind of the opposite approach to this. So you guys are both kind of a little more story focused. Tony, you're very story focused. And you kind of come into a, you come into a role playing game. You have a story you want the players to experience and to move through. And that really drives the beat of your game. Now, Dave, you're, you're, you're mostly story focused, but you also kind of want to let players drive things a little bit. You're kind of in between, right? It's, is, am I saying that right? So it's, in a way, it, again, that's some of the evolving that's been happening. And like each game that I run, I play something a little different and I might try something out just to see what's happening. Uh, but in a very similar way to what Tony was just saying in the current uh, campaign that I'm running for you guys, the Slaver's Bay one that you were just referencing, um, I very much had, a, you know, here's the initial adventure. Here's the initial <laughs> quest. Here's the initial whatever. And I put slave collars on you and I gave you a timetable, but a timetable long enough to be able to start exploring the world and meeting people and, and all of that. And then as you went along and, and talked with people and met other NPCs, little by little clues and secrets about the world began to be peppered in. So you would go, oh, well, what's happening over there? What's happening over there? But meanwhile, we still got to get up here so our heads don't explode. Because literally your heads were going to explode. You know? Actually, no, I think it was that the uh, I, I believe the Inferno reached out from the collars and tore the people asunder. I think that's how I had put it. But uh, well, and just to, 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 give, to give the listeners a little bit of background on that. So, like I said, we started as slaves in, the, in an arena. At one point, the slaves were treated to a show of the previous champions being brought back with these slave collars on. And the collars literally destroyed the champions in graphic ways. I believe one of them was basically had a gibbering mouth or erupt from his neck and eat him. Uh, it was yeah. all quite horrific, quite memorable. And all our characters had the same collars on, and we were essentially sent on the same mission that that group had, had chosen not to do. You know, that group had kind of gotten outside the gates and said, to hell with this, we're leaving. So you, you made it clear to the party that you're going to be sent on an adventure outside of the city, and here's what's going to happen if you don't go do that adventure. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't and, do what your queen says to do, you're going to die. So, And like Tony was saying, that's the way – I mean there is a level of having to help prod the party along to a degree unless you're dealing with wildly experienced players who are great role players and they'll role play amongst each other and all of this. A lot of times you have people sitting down and they're like, okay, what are we doing? You know, uh, so there, there, there's a little of that balance to be found. Now, at the same time with the Cutlers, you were able to explore a bit. And we did go off-roading, uh, as we would call it, quite a bit. We're on the way. We went off and did kind of side things. We got ourselves into side trouble. But mostly, I think you mostly had that stuff planned out, didn't you? Uh, to a degree, there were several things that uh, I kind of invented, and that was some of it. You know, you turn left, so I invented it along the way, and thankfully we were able to – to uh, I was able to end the session at a point that, you know, ooh, and now you're at the Warren of the Troglodytes, you know, and now I'm like, okay, well, now i got to fucking develop the Warren of the Troglodytes, which the is classic. easy because then that's just – that gives you time, you know, but – Well, that, but, is, yeah. that is the classic, and that is one of the best tricks. When they stumble into something you're really not prepared for, Stop the game. Give them XP. <laughs> Say we'll get together next week, and you have and you have a week or two weeks or a month to pull your stuff together. <laughs> I told you, I know you pulled that a few times too. <laughs> hey, some of the um, best games that I actually ever were. I had a DM who tossed a so-so story out there, but if I had the proper group of actors with me, we really just sold it like it happened. Yeah. Like, so what was that like? I mean, you said even with, with, the, with the proper group of actors, I, like, uh, how, how did that work out? 
with the right actors, with the right synergy in the group, um, it, the story shifts. What I like to do, which is obviously very we discussed, story based. Mm-hmm. Well, now it's turned into a character based scenario, and that we we're going to have much greater sense of agency. The DM's not super prepared, so we have, we're going to go off far south. Forget the hard <laughs> encounters. We're like in Florida. We're in Chitsunitsa. And, and next thing you know, we're, we're like, you know, five levels higher from fighting all those stone giants down there. I mean, but those turn, did turn into super memorable campaigns. Yeah, I would say so. And one of the things that's different is I know, Tony, you come in with a with a plan uh, and you usually have your own story you want to tell. I know, Dave, you tend to in the games I've played with you so far, you've been working for modules, uh, which is great. You know, I think play, playing modules, you know, there's some of the best RPG content that's ever been printed is in modules. Um, that stuff's a ton of fun. Um, I always take I, I'm totally the other school and you guys both know because you've both played with me like this. As a DM, I don't run book modules. I don't come in with a huge story. I come in with a world. I come in with kind of a set of scenarios and things going on and basically powers moving in that world and powers that I know have certain goals. So, for instance, in the, the one game I'm DMing, actually in the world you're both playing in in separate groups, there is a there is a there there is is kind of an ancient evil underneath the world. And I mean, an ancient evil is in the world is this egg and it will crack if it, it will crack the world if it awakens. That's one set of things going on. There's warring we kingdoms just discovered that, by the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. Group oh, I'm glad to that. see your group's just still playing. That must be nice. <laughs> Sorry for the spoiler, Tony. And that is a roll twenty. So what level are what level is, are you in your game? Can I hop over on that side? We're we're still we're still rolling at fifth level though. So it's, I'm it's fifth level. A, I'm joining. All right, great. So yeah, we could probably run into you. Yeah, you know, and that's something because the one group was happy jumping the roll twenty, the other group wasn't, and that's something for another episode, I think, because everyone's been forced to jump to roll twenty with COVID. How how do we like that? Well, let's I think that's a we'll deal with that in a future episode of Three Wise. DM. I have but, a lot to say about roll twenty. Yeah. Um. <laughs> wait, so, but I came into that game and I come into all my games with a world, and there's not really a story, but there's there's things going on, and I really like to kick it back to the players. I lay out for them a situation. There's usually an opening job they can take or something like that. But I really, you know, the players come in not knowing each other most of the time. I kick them off and kind of put them together and kind of put some loose thing out there. There's Usually it's a job they can choose to take. But I am 100% open to them not taking it. And I actually don't uh, I don't generally have a series of encounters set up. I don't generally have a dungeon mapped out, although I might have a map handy if I need one. Um I don't, I don't generally, I haven't generally set up a, uh, a, a dedicated story where, hey, your party member is going to be kidnapped here, and then that's going to happen there. It tends to be more throwing it back to the players and really giving the players agency and asking them what they want to do. And then wherever they go, I fill in, I kind of fill in the map when they get there. And I basically add what's going to happen. Now, I'm not totally unprepared for that. It's not that I, in fact, it'd be really incorrect to say I don't prepare because i can prepare quite a bit going into a game but my preparation tends to be okay they're at this level we're in this environment here's all the monsters i can use and i just kind of i'll read through the book and i'll say okay i like this guy this guy this guy kind of pull a lineup of monsters a little fight card i can pull from um and then i really throw it back to the players where do you want to go and it's okay we go over here we we go into that sewer we go we take this job and go into that forest and then i just ad lib what they run into as they run into those things and i keep kicking it back to the players um which is a different kind of game 
because the story oftentimes I don't really know how it's going to play out. I am ad-libbing many major parts of the story, even though I know who the main players are and kind of who the powers are and what their motives are. So if the players are dealing with this, I know that guy over there is still advancing this plot over here. Maybe they didn't find that. Maybe they chose to ignore it, but that's going to bloom later. That's going to be something they deal with and have, have a problem they have later or the other way around. You know, if they go south, whatever was going on up north is going to be a problem later or whatever's going on in the kingdom is going to be a problem later. But I try to kind of make this world this pretty loose. I'm not going to tell you it's super detailed because that's not the way I DM. I don't sketch out all the details. I let the players tell me what they want to do and I fill in details as they hit it. And what that does for me is I never – I'm kind of never caught flat-footed because I never don't expect to be flat-footed. doesn't mean I'm always great. <laughs> Occasionally I come into a game and I'm a little slow and I'm a little slow on names and things like that. But it's really become my method of DMing where I can kind of sit down and I'm comfortable sitting down with the party with you know sometimes minimal prep or sometimes extensive prep and just, okay, you guys, what do you want to do? You know, You know what your options are. What are you doing? You tell me. You control these characters. You have all the agency. You can solve this however you want. And that, for me, I feel like really works really well. Um, but part of the consequence is I'm never running book modules. And there's certain, certainly some things that are a little shallow, too. Like, I mean, sometimes my NPCs are a bit shallow because I'm doing most of them off the cuff. Well, I, I will know. say, yeah. just to jump in there, Thorne, and I think Tony would agree with this, too. Uh, and I think that some of the psychology of D&D as well about being behind the screen or in front of it. Uh, but like uh, Tony is running Storm King's Thunder for us right now. Now, he has an entire there's a, a very set story in some ways there. But we have no idea as the players where that's going. And we have complete agency to go wherever we want to go. Uh, but, and I think maybe Tony, if you want to chime in here too, my thought is the idea that the, these encounters or things that you have don't exist until that person opens the door, right? It's like Schrodinger's cat, right? For D and D so that your, your wizard tower encounter that you had developed, right? For the session. Well, that's also, that's not just in the forest. That's also in the bottom part of the crypt, let's say, right? And once you open that door, oh, well, now there it appeared, right? <laughs> Ta-da! It's, it's Schrodinger's gelatinous cube. It both exists and doesn't yeah. exist until the players open the door. So, Tom, what do you think about that? Since you, you, you and I are much more of the narrative focus to a degree. There was, in last game, there were certain bits of information I wanted the players to have opportunities if they were searching to find, which would then help flesh out and develop the plot. The plot in Storm King's Thunder is pretty involved, like, honestly. In reading the module, there was a really impressive amount of depth to it as far as all the buildings, the NPCs. Honestly, there were points in it, though, uh, without jumping off the rails on this, like I like the overall story, but there are some things that I really felt absolutely necessary to change. Like case in point, you guys are um, you're level four now, and the way you go through the prequel of this module, which is levels one through five, you're getting super power leveled. Like they're not like they are. That's right from the book with milestones. They're not effing around. Like here's your steroids. Boom. You know, you oh, you did these two things. You did these couple things. Boom. You just popped a level. And I've I, noticed I just that. Do it like that. No, it's worse. I've slowed it down. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> yeah, that was one no per kidding. session. That was one and per session. There, like there was one part where uh, and spoilers in the module, if anybody's doing this, but. 
you complete a part, which is not super long, and then you go to the next scene. If you complete that, well, it's a crap. I guess we'd be leveling up mid-game. I'm like, you did, like, two encounters. Like, what? Like what's happening here? I'm leveling them up. I get to level five in Thorns game. I was crawling across the freaking broken glass across my guts, hunting at kids yeah. and goblins and orgs and ogres. Like... And to be fair, I'm trying to level you guys every two to three games, four at the outside. So it's my not like it's taking that long per so level. So slow. Oh, my God. Okay. Here's the difference here. And I mean to go off top here. When we start at my game, everybody's like, all right, boom, we're doing this. We're supposed to go to the, the, the haunted keep. We're on our way. We got the horses go, ready to go. I'll talk to this person. Talk to this person. We're going. In his game, it's like, well, there's the haunted castle. Uh, that's the, what's that's in the, the shop? Play. That's the role play, man. I, yeah, I want to give, give the players. You know what? Some players, some players get impatient with it. Some players embrace it. And sometimes the players who get impatient with it are the same players who, who, who do, who take their own time with their role play and then get impatient with the other players role play. Um, <laughs> because I do feel like there's sometimes, sometimes the players who are most engaging with role play will then get impatient when they're, when, when someone else is doing their side of the thing. I, um, okay. Let me qualify that then. Character players who show up and their character sheets aren't ready. What in the fu- yeah no like come that's, on I guys. Think that is that is a different problem I think that is that's I mean, a, and that's, yeah that's a and you're gonna get into and that but that's actually maybe something to talk about because there is a situation where you know it's it's basically a lot of the players are part of the same family and they're part of the same friend group and kind of were in and then they're like the other half of the party is coming from outside and yeah sometimes it's not ready but it's a question of then you know what. I feel like once we get together and once it is ready, we still have a good time. Even if the game is a little bit abbreviated, we get a few less hours to play. I don't mind that because we're all hanging out together and having a good time. And I think that's okay. Rather than kind of, you know, I, I do push a little bit, but rather than kind of sit there and kind of getting upset with someone because our characters aren't ready, you, you're all getting together to have a good time and hang out with some friends. So that, that's, that's the other factor there too. Yeah. 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 You know, and that's but that is something that really dovetails nicely with the situation we're talking about, though. You know, it's you know everyone is coming to the game to have a good time first and foremost, and it isn't necessarily. I mean, no one's job is completing the game. You know, and that's maybe something about the way I also DM is that it's no one's job to get through the module or get to the end of this encounter. It's we're all there to have a good time, and I want to make sure that the players have the agency to really indulge in the creativity in D and D, and to really say, hey. You know, I want to take this thing and I want to maybe open a business. All right, we'll open a business, you know, and that will be part of the game. And that's 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 actually going to be interesting. One of the most interesting encounters I had as a player was we spent an entire night planning an auction. You know, we had found the party had found a MacGuffin. The MacGuffin was way above our level and was won it by devils and demons and angels and kings and like the, you know, basically every major power in this world. And we were bugs by comparison. And the only reason they weren't all killing us to take it is because everyone else was there and there was a sort of equilibrium. So we had to pass this on to someone. So we set up an auction and we spent the whole night planning the auction and we all had a great time. And it was bizarre because a lot of the players in there were impatient. A lot of people just want to do a lot of killing. But that kind of game always rubbed off on me that when the players are in charge, their characters have agency and they're making the decisions of what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Those to me are the best games. And I'm trying to kind of create the space for any player to kind of have that experience. Now, we do have in that game in particular, we have a couple couple kids came in, in the last couple sessions which is great, but they are a little younger. They don't know what they want to do yet. They, they, and and they, we got to guide them along a little more. But otherwise, you know, 
you know, that game, the way we set that up was Tony, your character is kind of the, he's like the manager. He was given a job by the king and he hired the other players to come do that job. So I'm kind of trying to let the party dynamics kind of pull these things together and move things along because it's not that I have a goal of completing this adventure. It's that the player has a goal of doing their job or not doing their job. If you want to assassinate the king, hey, I'm not going to stop you. King might, but I'm not going to. Now my character's lawful good. That's very unlikely that that would happen. Well, you see, I chose well as far as I was going to make the manager then, didn't I? <laughs> well, so I think some of this dovetails into what Tony was talking about in the beginning, too, with some of what he was – some of the things that, that uh, are the the biggest challenges for him as well. And it, a lot of it having to revolve kind of around certain issues that might have to do with players that might be <laughs> some personality issues. Tony, you yeah, want to – that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's – okay. But Let's let talk me, about okay. these traumatized players. Well, okay. <laughs> I think that phrase just it it begs for for elucidation. Okay. Well, I found there's a big problem sometimes with players I experience as a player and as a DM, and that's where we're under this impression that we're either heroes or we're villains. So we should be out doing something furthering that. Like, I, we're in a game. Okay. Well, there's this keep we should go clear out. Uh, I don't know. Mm. You know, and it's like, are, are you guys want to, do you want to go be heroes and clean out the Goblin Keep? Or do you want to sit home and eat burritos? Because those are two different things entirely. You can sit back and have taco <laughs> night. That's fine. But we're not moving the football at all. And, and I'll tell you, if you, okay, to your point, if you are going to run a role play, we're just going to sit around and have a good time. That's great. I need some really good dynamic role play then. Then we have to drive that. Um, I think the role, I think the role play in that case comes from what do the players want to do? And I mean, this isn't a game that hasn't gone anywhere. This is a game, you know, this is a game where you guys came back from one adventure and I threw open. Okay. You knew that there was a, that, that, that there was a, a, a vampire, who had actually had contact with Strahd and he was advancing the enemy's plot and they were going to come invade. And I threw it back to the players. How, what do you want to do? Do you want to handle this? Do you want to do something else? How do you want to handle it? And I had no idea how you guys were going to respond. And what the party decided to do was to get together. They, they, I mean, they're, they're a party of the King. So they actually they have some backing. This is a situation where Tony's character is a wizard who was in the employee of the kingdom. He's been given the job to, he's kind of been given the jobs, but these guys, they're deciding how they do things. It's not like the King comes and says, Hey, we need you to go invade this camp. We did first level, but after that, it hasn't been that way. Since then, it's been, hey, we have this vampire encampment over this this vampire military encampment over here. It's going. They're they're looking to invade us. What you know, what do you guys want to do about that, or do you want to ignore that and let someone else handle it and go do something else? The party decided to take the espionage route. They forged papers. They went in as dignitaries from another country. They snuck into the country, snuck in at one end. They walked to another. They got in. They met with the vampire. They got into this enemy keep. They talked him into seeing them alone, which I did not expect them to do, but they did a wonderful job of role-playing it and making the right roles and figuring out how they could get him alone. And then they got him alone and assassinated him, which level-wise should not have been possible. It was an entire adventure over – I think we did it over two or three different nights that was entirely – uh, driven by what the players decided to do, how they decided to solve this one problem in the in the game, and I thought it was some of our best sessions we had. You know, and really the key was the players decided how they were going to do things, not me. And that, which meant I was ad libbing, but the players were basically telling me what you know what they needed, and I just had to fill in the blanks and kind of provide that provide the scenes to let them do what they wanted to do. And I don't know, I think Tony, I thought that really worked really well. That that was a really excellent sequence. Um, 
for traumatized players, um, I want to throw an example. Um, I had a, a, a group that they had been in two back-to-back really rough campaigns. So by the time I got them, they didn't want to trust any NPCs in the party whatsoever. And because they're afraid of one or two things happening. One, the NPC was going to betray them outright. This person is a spy. That person selling figs, they're a spy. Number two, that person is going to upstage them because the DM kept implanting super NPCs who kept getting the killing blow and showing up at the moment doing the cool thing. And they're like, yes. Oh, now so, I understand traumatized players. Now <laughs> oh, I'm getting what you're meaning. Okay. So. So they're going to cross the Anorak Desert, and I'm like, hey, guys, maybe we want to get a guide. And they're like, nah, we're going in. Forget that. We'll find the temple. And 40 days later and 19 encounters later, they find it. But it was a real <laughs> hot mess, literally and figuratively. Well, so that's a situation where – and this, I think, comes up a lot in these kinds of things – where the, the DM had one way of solving the problem in mind, which is you guys are going to need a guide. And the players had a different way of solving that problem in mind. And then you got to figure out, okay, so how am I going to let the players solve it their way but still get them to the thing they want to get to, right? Mm-hmm. 40 days and 40 nights in a desert. It sounds fantastic and biblical. Well, did you – so as a DM, though, is that how you wanted it to play? You were the DM on that game, right? Yes. Is that how you wanted it to play out? Did you want them kind of wandering the desert for 40 days or? Uh, it wasn't really 40 days, but no, no. I thought this was like a real, like, you know, go to here, get a guide, a couple stops, a few encounters. Let's get to the module. Now they're kind of like stuck in the previews of the movie for like, you know, <laughs> three and a half hours. Well, could well some have... of that has to do with uh, with how a session that goes, though, as well, right? Because, I mean, I know we've all been in situations where uh, w- this, the last session we just were in uh, in Tony's game, we we crushed through I, six or seven encounters worth of material, at least. Was, yeah, uh, we cleared between, out a dungeon. Yeah, I think it was like I mean, it was at least. And four that was and also that was the stuff that, you know, on the way to. Any two of those encounters could have turned into an entire night in a different session, different players, different whatever it may be. And that's where I think some of the, the that back and forth and not it's not a matter of what do you want them to do, but or do you want them to go that way? But where are they going? And then how do you attempt to to help create a sense of of enjoyment out of that? You know, like you said, the role playing. I had a session where. We had done all kinds of just normal uh, in the first the first game when we had come back and started playing again. Um, and I had one session where I was really worried about it because it was heavy role play. It was heavy intrigue. They had gathered all of these artifacts and they were trying to help this uh, displaced noble reclaim his title because he had access to materials that they needed to forge a sword, blah, blah, blah. Um, they ate that shit up i actually set up the players in in you know it was like a dinner party kind of thing i set up the different factions and players and i gave them a sense of what they were trying to accomplish and i just let go and they went but i was amazed it was one of the best sessions we had and i was i was pleasantly surprised much like you were saying thorin where it it could be heavy role play or heavy combat it doesn't necessarily matter it's how are you facilitating that i think 
So there is for me, you know, one of the things that, that kind of keeps coming up is the, and this is something I found in other role-playing games too. One of the issues that kind of comes up, like what Tony just mentioned, they missed the guy, they got lost, the game kind of stalled out, and they spent longer wandering the desert than moving forward. And that's something that, um, I play the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game too, and that's an investigation-focused game. And one of the things that happens in that game is if the investigators miss a clue sometimes, the GM doesn't know how to handle it. And there's just a flat out clue missing and they can't proceed until they figure out how to go back and find that clue. And the GM's got to figure out something. So there's a game that tried to solve that by instead of relying on the clue being being found when you make the roll, this game called the Gumtree System automatically, if you have the right skill, you find the clue. So you so they take the risk out of it and they make sure the players find what they need to find. And I think that's one way of solving that problem. The players getting a little lost. So. Um, you know, making sure they find the mile marker or the guide they need to keep them going where you want them to go. <laughs> the, mile, the mile marker in the desert. <laughs> well, you know, it is. A, you know, if the I players know don't, if the players don't want to hire a guide, how can I make sure they're still going to have fun with what they're doing and they're not going to slog in the desert? Where they're going to spend time in the desert, they enjoy yeah. the time in the desert, and I enjoy the time in the desert. Um, I will say my attitude towards all that's a little different, though. I don't mind at all if the player characters spend half a session figuring out how they're going to do what they're going to do next. And to me, that is on the party. That is, and if players in the party have a problem with it, they, I don't want to create a situation where they expect me to solve that problem for them. I want the party dynamics to figure that out. The players need to figure it out amongst themselves because it's not my job to tell them what to do. Uh, Some people would disagree. Some people would say that is the DM's job. I fundamentally disagree with that. The way I DM is the player's jobs to decide what the characters are going to do. They got to work together or argue or not work together or move individually. I don't care. But they're responsible for what the characters do. That is their responsibility. If they feel like things are slogging out and they and they, they want things to speed up, well, then they can speed things up. Let me know how they want to speed things up. We'll speed things up. Um, if it's on me, I'll, I'll try to speed up my play. That's that's I, I, I can certainly try to do that. But for the most part, I'm removing that sense of, okay, you need to figure out the thing I need you to do to move this forward. I'm not saying you need to find this clue to move ahead. You need to you need to, th- to have the common sense to hire a guide to move ahead. To me, they tell me how they're going to solve the problem. I do apply some critical thinking to it, decide, okay, what needs to happen for that to work, or how will that fail, or will that work? And if it's not going to work, how do I convey to them that it's not going to work? And then I let that play out. And I just fill in the scenes that happen after that, ad-libbing them. So while the players might spend time figuring out what they want to do, I can generally facilitate what they want to do or at least have a, have, an, have an interesting encounter of, okay, well, here's why that didn't work and what maybe you want to do instead. Um, now, sometimes that can bog down on the player side where they don't necessarily know what they want to do. And sometimes it can bog down if I'm not quick enough. i got to be a little sharp when I come into games. Otherwise, it can bog down on me making decisions, choosing monsters, that kind of thing. But I really feel like the core solution to, to that, to that kind of players getting lost kind of problem is whatever the players do is the right thing, to, is, is the next thing to do. And there isn't a my journey to follow. There isn't a my adventure to follow. No. The players are deciding what the adventure is and what's going to happen. So as long as we're doing what they want to do, no one's lost. That's the way I'm kind of approaching it. I mean, I tell you, the I just, same thing in your game, though, in that mm-hmm. uh, the one that I've, I'm running for you, where we, I had a certain amount of travel time between the, the main city and where you, your, your, quote, mission was. And I had that it would take X amount of days. I forget exactly how many I had because of the amount of miles, whatever. But that turned into however many days for you guys. And it didn't mean (laughs) however you wanted to go with it. So I don't like I I don't think that any of these things necessarily have to be an either or. I think they can be absolutely an and. 
one of the struggles also is when I'm trying to get okay, we don't have the gumshoe method in five E. So we can. We I think it is in the DMJ. I think there's something like it there. We we solve problems with ability score checks or them trying to literally figure it out. So if I go, okay, make a tracking check and someone rolls four and I'm like, <laughs> Okay. Um maybe maybe you need to try again. Five. Okay, now here's the problem here. The DM can only help so much without blowing the continuity. Because if you roll crappy and it's obvious, they're like, oh, yeah, and you manage to shoehorn that into a positive answer, then they don't have to try or do anything. They know that you're just going to get them there, and that's unfortunate. Um, there was one game I was DMing. Um, this was the famous uh, pixie fiasco where uh, the party was chasing a witch who had kidnapped a druid, and they tracked her back to her cabin in the woods <laughs> and it was an evil was party you were in this game yes <laughs> this may have been like 20 years ago and so oh, they pulled up now. like yeah so they're like the, the the wizard of the party morgan's like well haha she's inside she's done like dinner and he burns the cabin to the ground he's like game <laughs> over roasting marshmallows well guess what she wasn't in the cabin. You found her cabin. You burned it to the ground. You didn't search it. And inside the cabin were two pixies trapped in a chest. Who, if freed, would have revealed that they believed that she went north into a cave where she was holding the druid. So they essentially just literally third degree burned their only clues on where this was going. And at that point, I, I mean, I, I could have played it dead because, like, that's that was actually a book module. Like, that was the point there. And I'm like, ugh. But then I, I start to pivot, and I'm like, okay, maybe you guys can try to track this down. And they eventually got there. But that was really, like, unbelievable to me as a DM at the time. Like, my mind was blown. Well, you see, and now, and maybe because I played in that game, from an early age, and I was playing with Tony and Tony's friends. Of, uh, I mean, we're talking teens, teens and 20s playing these kinds of games with, with a lot of kids who were, you know, let's be you know, high, drunk, horny. Keeping attention was a bit of a challenge, and, and, and players doing predictable things wasn't something you could count on. One of the lessons I took away, though, was actually never let it be a single point failure. And that includes situations mm. like the pixie problem. So my approach to the pixie problem would be, okay – You've burned down the pixies. You know what your, but you know what your major goal is. You know who you're chasing, or if you don't know who you're chasing, you know what you want to get to. You tell me what you're going to do, and then I tell, and then I'll figure out does that work, does it not work, how can it work. To take that to what you were talking about with ability checks, if you're in a situation where the players need to move forward, and you, and they could possibly fail an ability check that derails you, I would not have an ability check there. Doesn't mean the game's not challenging. I think there's a lot of challenges throughout the game. So the fact they find one clue or they pick up a trail without having to make a hard nature roll, I think is fine. Or I think to me, the better solution tends to be, how are you guys going to do this? They need to tell me how that's going to work and why that's going to work, which actually does come from the Cthulhu system. Because Call of Cthulhu does that. Call of Cthulhu's got this neat little thing where if you fail a die roll, you can, quote, push. But you got to tell the DM, you got to tell the game master how you're pushing. And then you get to take a second roll. But if you fail, there's more consequences. But that idea, even without the roll, I think is really valuable. You tell me, the players tell the DM, what is their solution going to be? And I'm going to work with it from there. I may, I may ask for roles. I may not. I may ask for roles that are. If I want to hide the bad role problem, I'll ask for multiple roles, and either only one needs to succeed, or give me an array, 
like you know, I kind of have a good feel for kind of what are the odds. Like you know, a D twenty roll on a on a on a ten difficulty is going to be a roughly fifty fifty plus whatever their bonus is. So I try to factor that in. And if I'm going to ask for a roll in a situation where I need them to succeed to move forward, I'm going to set them up to succeed. I do it subtly. The, DM, the the players hopefully won't understand kind of quite what the math was behind it, but I'll, I'll give them, I'll, I'll make sure they're going to succeed on that. So, because I don't think it's a good idea to set yourself up for if the player fails a roll, the adventure can't continue. Now we're all stuck kind of looking at the guy who failed a roll like, man, you really screwed up. That doesn't feel good for anybody. Uh, you know, it doesn't feel good for anybody killing your friends with critical misses, but that comes back to my problem with house rolls. Well, hey, do we want to move on from this then? Do we want to talk about that a little bit? The uh, traumatized players a bit. Sometimes the players are so set in their ways that they're like, no, 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 it's got to be this house rule or I quit. And we had that, didn't we? Yes, we did. They, uh, We uh, recently, within the last couple of years, played with a group that was adamant on this absolutely archaic, nightmarish, critical hit and miss system. So here's the thing. <laughs> if you hit a critical, you could do some incredible stuff. Like you could stagger the dragon in with a single blow. Now I understand the principle behind it. The principle behind it was very noble. If you have a sword, a piece of steel could kill a person in one shot if it's very well placed. Okay. In matter of speaking, that makes sense. But the problem lies also not even with the critical hits so much, but the critical misses. Where so what was that system? Let's let's just set the scene a little bit. So the system was your critical hit. If you rolled a twenty, you rolled a d4. If you if you rolled a one, you got on the critical table, and then you roll percentile. And the yes. percentile went anywhere from times two to times five to if you hit a if you rolled a twenty, a one, and a double zeros, instant death. Instant death. That was the idea. That's right. Mm-hmm. Then the critical miss system went the other way. If you rolled a one, and then you rolled a four on the d4, then you rolled the percentile, and whatever critical damage modifier you rolled, you now had to do that to a party member that the, D, the DM picked. My, my the that random part? roll. That's right. Yes, yeah. You're just yeah. insta-death so, somebody. Well, it wasn't necessarily insta-death, but it would, and that was kind of what was tricky about it was, in, it was second edition. Second edition damage to hit points aren't great, especially for some of your classes. And you had an archer who was, who was firing like six shots around at first level because of some kooky combination of uh, stuff. And he and was the old handbook. Some, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't. It was all book. It wasn't like it was homebrewed. But he was rolling so many dice that he was guaranteed to critical miss once per session, and almost guaranteed to kill whoever he shot because he was so powerful. Because his his, his arrows did so much damage. So every session, unless you were a fighter, every session was Russian roulette. One of us was going to die. Like I came in as a bard, as a, as a dexterity focused bard without a hit points, but I'm like, oh yeah, my armor class is great. The critical miss table did not give a damn about your armor class. Uh, that, nope. I don't think that's to be crit- that. Uh... It shouldn't have to be that. I think there's a really cool – I wanted to play with it at one point, but uh, the Pathfinder uh, system had released a critical miss deck of cards. Um, I actually printed out the PDFs just to get a sense of them. Um, and it wasn't anything like that, but it just gave extra flavor or maybe even a little extra damage to a critical hit or a critical miss just to you know, make it even more – crazy right just a little oh my god you got a one what's gonna happen you know my you know you sunder your weapon or something you know that type of thing but to get back to yeah yeah, and the players are like well that makes sense interesting without it it's boring i remember a scenario i was we were everybody in the party was in a a straight line we were underground and we we turned a corner and there was an umber hulk 
and I won initiative. I was a, I was the badass half elven fighter, and I rolled a critical miss one. So the placement of the mit, the critical miss strike was randomized. So there was like a seven eight person <laughs> party. So apparently what happened was I went the key up on the the beholder, threw the sword over my shoulder, went twirling in the air. The guy, the cleric, seventh from the back, was like, holy shit, open his mouth. And the sword went down his throat and hit him for 50 damage. <laughs> and I'm that like, is... I couldn't do 50 damage to save all of our lives. No way. And that was the problem with the system. Was uh, and, and Well, I mean, so, that, so the system had problems. But then the core problem was you had, about, you had about half the party who really, really believed in it and wanted it. Not ironically, not, not coincidentally, that half of the party was like a paladin a fighter and someone else with plenty of hit points who could soak a critical hit. The guys playing wizards and rogues were getting off. Uh, yeah. I don't think there was any coincidence to the fact that the paladin was like, no, I love this. We got to keep this or I'm quitting. Um, but he did have the players, the players who wanted it were, it was an old rule, something they liked, something they loved from before, but it really created problems in the game because you couldn't play a character with low hit points. You just couldn't, you were going to get mowed down. And there was literally the threat of, we will quit if this game doesn't have this feature. And I, you know, we never really solved that other than just p- players survived long enough that they could survive taking a couple critical hits, critical misses. Um, did we solve it? All right. Well, I think the proof was the pudding. If I'd thrown your party, say you're like level three or four, um, at say a whole array of zombies, like monsters that couldn't have really laid a hand on you, no pun intended. And you guys just mowing them down with your dual wielding and all these fancy options you would have probably killed yourselves off by yes. rolling by by rolling these misses like oh you know Luke just critically missed and stabbed Tom in the head oh you know <laughs> we were at one point we were losing a, a person every session to this because there were so many attacks getting rolled that someone was in a miss and someone was in a by the farm. And that was that was a really difficult as a DM, and I know you, you were the one DMing, but I, I sympathize because it was a difficult spot where we had people we wanted in the game, you had people you wanted in the game, and everyone wanted them in the game. No one wanted anyone out of the game. Uh, where it was, well, if I'm going to have this person in the game, they insist on having the system, but yet that system was causing problems to a lot of other players' characters. I, as a DM, my attitude has is really, I don't care what you do in the game, you don't get to decide what anyone else's character does. But this is a situation where you really, these players want this, but this is keeping these other players from playing the, the classes they want to play. But there were serious problems where you basically needed the players who were who were losing their characters had to suck it up and play differently for the players who insisted on the, on the system. Definitely good times there. <laughs> Fun game, though. I mean, it didn't ruin the game. In the, also, I guess we should say all of these problems become less of an issue as you go up in level. Once you had, once the characters had enough hit points where they weren't going to get killed by the, by the, by the, by the mad archers, crazy one. This, okay. We could soak it some, you could deal with it. That instant death was the problem. Well, I feel like this probably dovetails into what, what uh, Tony was talking about with rules lawyers as well, then, because mm-hmm. this doesn't sound as much as I didn't play sec. I played first edition. I didn't play any second edition. So I don't know specifically about this, but it doesn't sound like it's a house rule as much as, a rule house. that it was a complete house rule. It wasn't. Oh, yeah. a, okay. Oh, you guys did that. Okay. It sounded well, like it was coming from the book. It's with all the tables and everything. But you know, a house rule doesn't necessarily mean. I mean, a rules lawyer isn't necessarily rules lawyering just book rules. Rules lawyers are often ro- rules lawyering house rules as well, which is kind of what you had. You know. Um, but also, you know, I understand why they wanted to keep it. 
And from DMing second edition, I had such a hard time keeping parties alive and keeping players alive. I really felt like it was part of my art was DMing first level characters without killing them in second edition. You're a wizard <laughs> with two hit points. How do I not kill you? You know, like I remember one guy had a samurai and their very first encounter, a goblin with a club hit him with a critical hit, natural 20 double damage. And that was enough to kill that samurai. <laughs> Boom. Off the top. Wow. Like, I, I can barely control my critical hits. I don't have the time or the patience to deal with you guys killing you when I don't mean for you to kill you. It's a dangerous world out there. <laughs> it is. There was a variation of that critical miss system that we didn't use, but some of our friends in our circle did, where you could hit yourself with critical misses. So another <laughs> guy we used to off. play with, yeah, he had this really amazingly statted fighter First game, stabbed himself. Right, no, excuse me. He cut himself in half. And I, okay. And I know I'm really heavy in continuity, but I'm like, guys, how does that make sense? He cut himself in half. Like, was he fighting with a with a flying guillotine? Like, what what happened? You know, I could describe it if I had to. The problem is, as a DM, you just never want to have to deal with it. I mean, look, if I want you dead, I'll kill you myself. Don't kill each other. That's that, that's my job. That's true. I couldn't. I felt really awkward trying to apply pressure to the party with these encounters when I'm like, well, all right. So the clerics are already dead and they have no healing and they're in the graveyard. Ha. <laughs> so, all right. So I mean, so let's let's get to that rules lawyer point though. That that that, that Tony you had brought up too. And I think it's one of the challenging things at the table. Um, I myself as a player tend to want the rules to work the way the book says they should work. There's a reason for this. Now, I used to work at Inquest Gamer, so I'm someone I had professionally covered video games not video games, video games, card games, role-playing games as an editor for five years. I came out of that with a real respect and interest in how do gaming systems work. So when I sit down to play a game, I want to know how it plays before we start house-ruling things. And I tend to kind of get into the rules and be like, oh, cool, I can push people, I can grab people, I can drag people, and I want to use that in the game. So I know DMing me I tend to be the guy going, hey, by the way, this is how that works in the book. Um, I mean, is that kind of thing problematic or is the rules lawyer the guy who's always trying to milk it for his own benefit? What do you guys think? I think that there is, again, like what I was saying before, it doesn't have to be an either or. I think it's an and uh, because going all the way back, you know, to the to the, the yesteryears of the game, <laughs> it pretty much started with. Whatever you say, here's some rules, but whatever you say at your table happens, right? And I think that there's 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 a tradition there that that should be honored, and there's there's a a, a, a freshness and a, and a creativity there. But with that said, the rules exist for a reason, and these people designed them over now five. If we're talking D and D, five editions of the game, right? And five E, they have tightened up a lot of these mechanics. And there needs to be at least the skeleton of that, because I've played in games where the DM had very little knowledge of the rules. And it wasn't that they wanted to house rule. It's that they just didn't have knowledge of the rules. And as a player, that was not enjoyable because, much like Thorin says, the things that I'm supposed to be able to do that I built this character for, I am now I'm, I'm handicapped and through no fault of my own. And that's not fun. What do you think, Tony? Well, there is a difference between being a rules attorney and being a rules lawyer. If if you're really if you're really a person who cares how the game's played, 
that is something. I mean, and and you have to really be if you're really fair and you look at a situation and go, okay, this is how the rules play when you when uh, your party fighter is trying to like do something absolutely ridiculous. And he's like, eh, not so fast. You know, you stopped the DM earlier, but he's like, no, 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 you can't face the wall. Calm down. <laughs> um, but the rules attorney is looking for the maximum settlement. He's always looking for why their party should get more than the DM's offering or it should bounce their way. And as a DM, it gets very tiresome. That yeah. person, like, you don't really, like, that person doesn't have any cred. It's like, okay, I'm rolling my <laughs> eyes behind the DM screen. Like, yeah, Tony's not talking about the rules lawyer. He's talking about the divorce attorney. That's a totally different concept. Uh, but I do. Hang on, guys. I, I can get us the kids, too. Yeah, I dig it, though. I dig it. Puffin's Forest did a video defining this, and he did a pretty good job. But, um, but yeah, no, that's. Because that player, and honestly, as a player with a rules attorney, it's like, come, okay, look, it's not that bad. Just, just come on. Like, okay, okay, we, right, it, maybe it shouldn't be only 75 gold, but uh, like, I'll look at the cane and pull him off stage. Like, we go to the next scene. Oh, uh, I, thankfully, I have not, I've run into rules lawyers in the sense of, you know, um, you know, wanting to really debate the rules back and forth. Uh, and that's where I usually consider a rules lawyer. I've thankfully not run into this divorce attorney D and D guy. Thankfully, because I don't even know what to do with that. But I think there needs to be, I think Thorne, we've talked about this because I, I have DM'd you and I do DM you. So I know what you're talking about. Um, and you have a knowledge of the rules and you want to, and you want to, uh, respect how does this game work before we start to mess with it right because if it's not broke don't fix it and i dig that um but i think that they're always i think the problem that comes in for dms is that it's when they don't respect the dm's position where you're behind the screen and you are trying to run let's say even a party of four but most times six seven people and all of the varying storylines and all of these things, you're trying to make a ruling right at that point. And it may or may not be exactly correct, but at some point it's the DM's fiat. You know, you can always return to that later and say, hey, what, what if we what if we kind of uh, talk about this and figure it out? That's one thing. But we'll do uh, it differently moving forward. But for tonight, we're going to exactly, do it. Exactly. And I think we I think you've even done that several times in the game. Oh, where yeah. you. You know, you came back and said, actually, you know what, with the whole dropping the shield and picking it up, it's, you know. But at that moment, you're in the middle of seven different rounds of combat with all this stuff. You're, you're trying to, you know, track hit points and movement and all these other things. You can't be expected to know what was the rule on page 86. I mean, Jerry Crawford himself. The guy who wrote most of these freaking rules goes, <laughs> actually, I'm, he still is putting out, you know what? We actually meant this on page 14, whatever, you know? So I don't think anything should ever, though, should ever supersede the rule of cool. You know, if somebody comes up with some crazy ass idea, give them a little something, man. Right. Well, there, I know there was Tony a- has done that in the game. He's DMing for us. He's definitely gotten stuff. That is not at all in the rules, but he's just been like, that's cool. Go with that. You know? Well, yeah, I got to tell you, running, running the game on D20 is, Roll20 is really uh, a different experience from yeah. all the time behind a tabletop, on a tabletop behind a DM screen, where it's like, 
in some respects, it's fantastic because there's a lot less arguments and debates because it's like, okay, Dave, I can see you can't move 30 there. Count them out. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> yeah. From a the guy who spent my, Yeah. I mean, I spent most of my career metagaming. And in fourth edition, using the map made me want to jump off a bridge. That's another whole topic. I don't think we're getting to edition wars. Fourth edition is dead. We can leave it lie. <laughs> Maybe yeah. second edition. We can talk about how much we love second edition sometime. But, you know, so on the rules layer thing, you know, it's funny because we, we've talked about this a little bit. Um, in the, and then in the last call we had, too, we talked about this. And I went back and I thought about it. So I don't ever want to deal with the confrontation with the with the with the player character who puts himself in opposition to the DM. With a player character who acts like the DM is just out there to try to beat them. Because believe me, if I'm a dungeon master, I can kill you whenever I want. It's not a challenge. That dragon can show up. Like, like at no point in time am I trying to screw the players because it's just too easy. <laughs> you know, there's there's nothing there's nothing keeping rocks from falling and players dying other than my goodwill. So look, I'm not out to screw anybody. Um, so that is where that could be a problem. On the flip side, though, one of the things... I, you know, a lot of the games we played have been us trying to learn 5th edition. We've been playing for a couple years now, but still, there's a lot of 5th edition I don't know. And i got to tell you, I don't appreciate the way some of the, way, the, the ways the books are laid out. There are things I want to find the answers to in the combat section to quickly get an answer during a fight that I can't because they're in the ability score section or they're somewhere else. It's very annoying. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So one of the things I appreciate is having a player at the table who can just tell me, no, this is the way that works by the book. Or, hey, that's an optional rule in the DMG. It's on this page if you want it. Or just they'll look it up and tell me, yeah, here's what it says. I love having that, actually, because that keeps me from having to stop the game to go look it up myself. So I'll a lot of times ask a player, Dave, you've been this guy a few times. Dave, go find how that works. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, actually, cleric abilities come up or something. I'm yeah, usually, cleric. yeah. And, uh, and in Tony's game, one, some of the stuff you're talking about is things like with grappling and pushing. And actually, they're in the player's handbook. Um, and, and, and in fact, the stuff, some of those, they're, they're directly in the player's handbook. They're not even really optional. Uh, so it's just a matter of knowing they're there and someone knowing how they work. So you can adjudicate them without the DM going, you want to do what? Uh, so I appreciate having a rules lawyer at the table for that aspect of things. But you're right. The rules attorney, the guy who – because the rules attorney, it isn't so much about he's dragging things out to go dig up the rules. It's about – he really, he's just a power gamer. He's just trying to get the maximum benefit for his character, and that's not really good for the table. Um, and then the other thing that becomes a problem is when the player doesn't know when to stop arguing the rules. Because well, the player, even if you, even if the DM disagrees, you have to know when to stop and move ahead. Because no one wants to spend, as much as, as much as it can be frustrating to spend a couple hours with the player deciding what to do, no one wants to spend two hours debating the rules when you only have six hours to play. Ah, uh, but we've all been there. We have no, absolutely. no, definitely oh, yeah. not. With a traumatized party scenario, I I, I had a DM who, ga- who ran a game for a bunch of players where they got to level ten, they found a magical item shop, they spent all their money to shop, and it was all crap, and they couldn't get their money back. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Like, what did I just inherit? Like, you guys are so salty. Like, oh my god. Like, <laughs> well, that's a, that's something that that's something that to dis, at some point to discuss too is the you know some of the 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 poor experiences that can be had you know uh, because people are bringing their own issues to the table and and playing them out either through their characters against other characters or from the d even worse from the DM onto the characters like. Dude, what the hell? I just wanted to eat some pizza and kill some fucking orcs. I don't know why I'm helping you out with your mom issues, you know? Like, 
we, we've <laughs> all been in that situation too. I yeah. mean, yeah. so so that's I, one of the things where you just got to keep playing because you you find certain players that you go, ooh, I really want them in my my next game. Oh, I really mm-hmm. want them on my because you're trying. You know, it's almost like you want to curate this this perfect group. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Dave, your ba- yours and Bonnie's backstories for my game. Like I'm reading this and I'm like sitting my coffee. I'm t- I'm scrolling down. I'm like, holy shit, scroll down. I'm like reading this. Like I was like, wow. Dude, I only sent you a page one. I sent Thorin, I think three pages. No, I got three, I got three pages from you and your girlfriend sent me like six or seven. And I'm like, I'm used to like, yeah, I'm a half orc barbarian. My name's Thag and I like eating cows and yeah well again that goes a lot that goes a lot to just the way that i like and uh, i think this goes back to some of what we were talking about before too in that i love playing in games where uh other players uh are or have been dms they have been behind the screen because they bring all of this extra they 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 realize that they're a big part of the game uh, and uh, Thorne, you say this all the time with where where players expect the DM to kind of make the fun. And I think some of that comes because they don't realize how much power they have because they haven't been given it. You know, they don't know. So um, I like to give as much as possible to the DM. And I love that Tony was very responsive to that and was like, oh, my God, Cause because whatever you want to do with it. But like if people send me stuff from backstory, I mine the fuck out of that stuff. Like, because that's, that's nothing but taking onus off of me because now I can tie you into the story without having to try. Depending on the game we're playing, I may or may not work in a lot of backstory. A lot of times in the beginning, I drop the players in and I really want to focus on what they want to do now. Not so much what they were doing in the backstory, but then what I'll do is I'll bring the backstory up later. You know, so it's yeah. like I'll start bringing in things from the backstory. So players might think I forgot about it, and then we hit level six or seven. And oh, hey, remember, remember that those bounty hunters you were running from? One of them just showed up in town, and he's looking right at you. No doubt, a lot of guys will say they talk about how the guy sends you this backstory. That's like, you know, he's the soldier that went through the Great War, and he was a. And you're like, you're level one, bro. Like, <laughs> I don't know how to work you in when you're this grizzled veteran. Like, I don't, head drama. Which you did perfectly yeah, with. You did. Thorin did expertly with. Uh, this paladin character we have in the other game, the and way the that wizard. He ha- the wi- yeah, and the wizard. How do you have these like forty-five-year-old characters? And literally, the characters are forty-five and fifty years old. How do you have them starting at level one? And he did such a great job in in, in how he kind of played that around. But so so but, and let's yeah. get into that. Yeah, so 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 people who are listening, so they know what we're talking about there. But this is a situation where in the group uh, we started with you with you, Dave. Um, the guys had come in. Two of the players came in with older characters who had careers. The one was a court wizard who had was like an old. He had been an adventurer. But his the guy he had adventured with, who was the lord who had him as a wizard, died, and his son fired him. So he's all of a sudden back out on the street when theoretically, once upon a time, this character whose name is Hasbin, he had once been a high-level adventurer, but we've just played that he's just forgotten everything. So he's at first level. He's trying to remember his spells. He's, he's really Hallister. <laughs> yeah, he's like uh, he's like Fizban from Dragonlance. He's just this doddering old fool, but, you know, anyway. But, 
and so that was one way to solve that was, yeah, he's, he's kind of, there is a reason he no longer has that power and he is remembering it because now he's forced back out on the road. So that's one good way to handle that. The other one was, um, Sir Morton is the paladin and the paladin again is like a, he's like, he, he's like a 40 year old paladin. The way he brought him out was he's an older paladin who's done his adventuring. And he's maybe a little bit of a, he's like a Falstaffian kind of character. He's a guy who likes to eat and drink and, and hang out in, 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 in the paladin hall. So we played that where he had done his things when he was younger, but only as much as he could. And he always preferred to be in the comfort of the, of the keep. So he was really kind of the paladin who was constantly at home when the other guys were out adventuring until they kicked him out. So we played him as, you know, he had gotten to first level and he would tell you he was very powerful and how great he had been. But in truth, he really hadn't gone out that much. He had kind of done the bare minimum. And then as soon as he got to a point where he had enough respect, he could do it. He just hid in the castle until he was in his 40s. And then they kicked him out to go, you got to go do this thing because I don't want you sitting around anymore and you're expendable. So go, go find this missing brother. So he's got 20 years of rust on him. Yeah. And that's, you know, he might, and maybe, maybe say he, maybe he had advanced the third level before he started, you know, just eating himself, you know, eating himself into an early grave. But that was, you know, that, that kind of solution I think is really key to those kinds of characters. Cause sometimes you have a player who comes in and they want to be playing a character who is already experienced and already powerful. And you're like, well, we're starting at first level. So here's how we're going to talk your character back down to first level. So you can start with everyone else, even though you have this backstory of someone who's had this, this, this full interesting life before. Well, and also, like I was saying to Tony, like he was reading that stuff, but like Bonnie and I, my girlfriend, we we did we play a lot of D and D, and we are huge into like you know story and character and all this kind of stuff. So we just developed this idea that we were going to be these twin half elves, and we were like, "Ooh, what <laughs> if we did X, Y, Z?" And not to give out some of the some of the things, but what what in essence I did, and we talked. I said. We just threw it out there, and whatever Tony wants to take or not take is completely up to him, but at least it gives him something. If he wants to, oh, geez, I want to tie somebody into something, it at least lets you have the ability, aside from, uh, yeah, I have a battle axe, and I'm from uh, I'm from Trenton. you know. And it's like, okay, I'm not, like, I want to try to bring you in, but, you know, but if it, and that's fine, too. If the player just wants to kind of just, kick down doors and kill orcs that's awesome you know but that's just what i kind of that's what i'm into so that's what i bring to the table when i'm playing (laughs) even if it's not asked for i mean you're a story focused dm by the way i'm also still waiting for some backstories from youtube bastards too for friday i've got some friday Let's by, not bring it up the, the way, podcast. <laughs> and honestly, so that's, uh, I mean, we, we, I know Shannon and I, my wife is going to be in that game, and I know we're talking about, we're probably going to make them tomorrow or the next day. She'll have them. You know, it's funny because you're a story-focused player and a story-focused DM. And some yeah. players come in and they're not story-focused at all, which kind of dovetails to one of the problems I've run into. Um, now, Tony was in this game. We had a really good friend of mine. Uh, he's, he's a guy who's more of a, like a magic player, more of a, more, more of a strategy gaming player or a tactical gaming player. Um, and he played with playing fourth edition with us and he actually liked fourth edition but he liked fourth edition because it was almost like playing a minis game because it was almost like you had your cards and powers to use every fight and every day and you could strategically use them to build these really big these cool combos and and basically knock things out and and just overwhelm the opposition um yeah the problem is me as a role, me as a DM, even though I'm not story focused, I am setting focused. So I like to do things like, for instance, I think Skyrim did a great job of this. In Skyrim, most of the monsters leveled with you. 
except the giants and mammoths and a couple other things. Uh, Dwarven centurions also did not level with you. That meant that the rest of the monsters were at the same challenge level, whether you were first level or 100th level, except for a couple things around that were sort of skill testers. Like the giant was there for the giants showed up pretty early. They didn't bother you, but if you went and tried to rob from them and they found you, they knocked you into the sky. Literally, they would hit you and knock you into orbit, and your character was do dead. Do not touch that mammoth cheese. No, do Don't not do mess with the giants and their mammoths. Leave them alone. But as you went up, that's level, not going to do well with a power gamer. That's well, not going to do well. And that was the thing. So, like, so yeah. like those things are there to set power level, and I like to do that. I like to have okay, here's some things that you can't deal with yet. That as you go up in level, theoretically, you might be able to. Now, some of those things, like in the game Tony's in, they've met a 20th level archmage who has, on occasion, shut the party down because he said no. Um, and that's the thing. You know, that is a character who they will not be able to, to, to go against openly until they are very high in level. In this game, it was a it was the sheriff in the town. The, the party had come to an evil town, and the sheriff was kind of your classic southern southern corrupt sheriff, like you all ain't from around here. And he beat and he would bully the party a little bit. And this character tried to tried to take him out. And that and that and that NPC just knocked him on his butt, you know, knocked him on his ass and started beating him up. And he barely got out alive. And the player was upset about that because the player felt like if anything that's introduced in the game, I should be able to take out because it should be level appropriate. Whereas I'm setting things around the edges to say much of it's level appropriate. But there are certain things you can't beat yet that you'll level up to be able to be able to beat later. And that created this real – the difference in expectation created a real problem. And actually that player wound up quitting the game. Not then, but there were hard feelings from then on out, and it happened a couple other times, and that player wound up quitting. I look back on that a lot to try to figure out could I have handled that differently. I don't know. Tony, you were in that game. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that situation? Well, this comes down to – and we touched on this a little earlier – does the DM have a right to put out something that can't be easily defeated or defeated without real heroics? And my short answer is absolutely, because if not, then there's no reason in every situation just to bum rush these monsters because mm. you're supposed to win. There, You've now <laughs> severely weakened the threat of character death, which is critical to the continuity of the game. The characters must feel like they can die or they're just stamping their characters with more XP. I showed up. OK, where's my plus five sword? You know, so no, I, I think that part was not out of out of line at all. Um, I had a uh, w- with a story based character. I had uh, I had spent like uh, a month conceptualizing a cavalier. I think you may have played in this game, Thorne. You may not have. Mm. He got to like second or third level and we got in a random encounter and I won't, you know, name drop this DM, but we'll just call him Hot Dice. And uh, <laughs> we were fighting an ant and I played with that guy. <laughs> no, you haven't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this guy. Yeah. And um, he uh, an Etten bit me on the neck on a twenty. And I'm like, well, and in second edition, you roll a the saving throws were just unforgiving. Like, oh, I rolled a 10. Oh, I'm a second or third level Cavalier. Guess what, bro? You're dead. Say goodnight, Gracie. It's over. I'm like, well, I, I had this in his brother and his father and the uh, he's dead. <laughs> you made the comment that came in. Like, if I die one more time, I'm coming back. It's either Timmy the Thief or Wild Wizard. <laughs> I'm not putting any backstory in it. 
that, so, so, there is yeah. something to be said about that, though, too. Yeah, absolutely. You spend too much time on backstory, and then third level in, you're dead. Like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> you know, I think that is um, that that is one of the one of the parts of the DMs art that gets uh that that gets overlooked. You need to create the feel in the illusion and the very real threat that players can and will die. And I say this every new game. You guys have both heard me give the speech. I don't care if your character dies. I don't. At the same time, I don't want to kill you accidentally. If you die, you do something stupid, or you die because it was a tough encounter and things went against you, and I gave and, and I wasn't able to pull it back, and you weren't able to save yourselves. Okay, character death happens. We're going to move on. You're going to roll a new character. We're going to keep. We're going to keep moving. But there's a real art to not killing them when you don't mean to kill them and not killing them so much that they lose interest in the game and that they lose their passion for the characters they're making. And I think that's kind of the tricky thing is balancing having a world where there are some things the players shouldn't be able to fight, communicating that to the players and making sure that that gives them the right expectation that, hey, there are, you got to use your heads because if you fight something you can't, you can and will die. At the same time, not making it so deadly and not and not over ramping things to the point where players are dying left and right because then no one cares. Like a little death is a good thing. It keeps players honest. Too much death makes the game not matter. Yeah, if it's just a meat grinder, then you know unless, unless it's specifically yeah, unless you <laughs> you kind of set it up that that's what we want to run. We want to run yeah. a meat grinder dungeon. Just we're all gonna roll up five guys and see what happens, right? You know. Tomb of Horrors. Tomb of Horrors is literally... Exactly. So, exactly. There's a time that's and place a, for meat grinders. That's what I'm exactly thinking, yeah. <laughs> so, or, you know or anything in Redbox. Redbox was kind of like that. Yeah, of course, you didn't have a lot of options when you're making a character. It makes make three choices and move on. You know, but I do think it's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing there. And I guess... So some of the things I've thought about since then is kind of how could I have handled that situation differently to not... I mean, sometimes you're going to lose a player anyway. Sometimes you just have you're just not running the kind of game the player wants to play. I generally want to try to put players in a position where they're going to enjoy the game and get to do the things the characters want to do. And I guess signaling is probably something I could have done a little bit better there, making sure the player was aware, it was clearer from the beginning the player was not going to be able to take this guy out. Um, two would be, you know, you can always pop something else into the encounter to alter what's happening. Like, you know, maybe someone else shows up and breaks up the fight. You know, maybe something else happens that kind of separates them when the player has just seen enough to realize, okay, I can't take that guy out. Uh, some other, other, other tricks like that. I do think, and this might be controversial, but as much as I want the game to be deadly, I don't think a good DM leaves the fate of the game into the hands of the dice. You know, and that kind of comes back to what we're talking about with the clues. Like, you don't necessarily leave it entirely up to random chance the players die. You don't necessarily leave it entirely up to random chance if they find the thing they need to find to move on, or if they're able to get past this particular challenge. I think part of the trick is creating the illusion that the players are on the knife's edge of failure well, I'm being sure on the back end that, yeah, they're probably going to succeed on this. If they don't succeed on this, we'll do that thing. If they don't succeed on that, well, I'll figure out something else. And if it's a TPK, well, maybe it's a total party capture. And now we're going to have a neat scene of them trying to escape being sacrificed to the to the goblin gods. If players die and you meant for them to, or if players die and it was legit, okay, you let it stand. But if it's not totally legit, how, know how to get yourself out of the situation so the players save face and they keep wanting to come back and play. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, you know, guys, we've been going on for a little bit here. I think we're probably over an hour. So we've covered a lot of the topics we wanted to cover coming into today. We covered, you know, uh, how do you deal with players ad-libbing? And we have three different takes on that. I will still stand by. Wing it. 
<laughs> that's my advice. If they're ad-libbing, just wing it. Just, just, just know your monsters and wing it. But, you know, I mean, getting them back on the rails, like, you know, Dave and Tony, you guys were talking about, is also a real a real art and kind of understanding how to pull them back in. I mean, you guys want to say anything else about that? or Be open enough to I, – again, I, I think for me the mantra tonight for most of what I've been talking about is not either or, it's and. Um, even if you have a, a current adventure that you're you're running, even if it's pre-published, even if it's your your like I say, mm-hmm. kit bashing modules together, uh, it doesn't matter because whatever they do, it's just the next thing, and you only have to play them for the next session. You don't have to play in the next ten levels, right? Yes. Like uh, mm-hmm. other than an outline. What's the next session? What's the next session? What's the next session? Right. So. So they turn left, no big deal. They got to travel a day at least to get there. <laughs> <laughs> and then we talked about uh, so okay. So then we talked about kind of really what to do about traumatized players and players who are attached to house rules. I don't know, Tony, you want to sum up kind of what are your what's your takeaway there? Uh, some house rules, uh, you know, as Dave said, they have history at the table, and I think they're to be respected in the appropriate circles, and some of them are absolutely heinous. Um, <laughs> and it should be left in the past where they belong. And, you know, the third thing there we talked about, you know, what do you really do when the player and the, and the DM expectation is in conflict? And I think the, uh, the the trick is, as a DM, I like to believe that, I like to say that the player's character is theirs, 100%. You play your character however you want to play them, I will provide the adventure for that character. The world is mine. The rest of this world, that's all mine. But I do think there is, a, there is an art form, and maybe one I haven't even mastered myself, of conveying what are the limits in that world and what's dangerous without letting and, and letting players experience it without running so far off the rails that they get that, that they get themselves killed. Or if they do something that should get them killed, being creative about how you're going to get them back out of it and coming up with a different way to do it. So that's my takeaway. Dave, Tony, thank you very much for the conversation. I had a great time. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. So on behalf of the Three Wise DMs, thank you all for listening. You can find our podcast anywhere podcasts are served. And check out threewisedms.com if you want to see what we're up to. Read our articles. We've got a few articles up there already. Leave some comments and let us know what you want to hear us talk about. We hope to hear you next time the Three Wise DMs. Mm-hmm.